Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy Please remain standing while I read my brief text for today's sermon. comes from the book of Hebrews, first chapter, the first four verses. Now hear God's word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let us pray. Our gracious God, I thank you for the privilege to stand before your people and to bring your word to them. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would now be at work here, speaking through me and touching the hearts of the people of Foundation Church and all who would hear this message. Father, help me to rightly divide your word and may... The words that I say not only bring glory to you, but point our hearts and our minds to the only one who is worthy to save us, and that is your Son and our King, Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you love a good dramatic rescue story? That's fun, isn't it? Um, Now, I'm... I'm the, uh, I'm the grumpy, persnickety elder who takes issue with the theology of C.S. Lewis. But uh, I'm about to reference at the beginning of my sermon the great theological cinematic work, The Princess Bride. All right, now show of hands, how many of you have seen The Princess Bride? Come on, all right, at least you're honest. 99% of the people in the congregation have seen The Princess Bride, so... If there's anyone out there whose hand didn't go up, The Princess Bride is a story of a farm boy, Wesley, who completely gives his heart and falls in love with the lovely princess, Buttercup. But conflict arises when Buttercup is kidnapped by 
the evil Prince Humperdinck, and she's taken to his kingdom, and she needs to be rescued, right? We all know the story. And so who's going to try to rescue her? Well, Wesley, her love, has been tortured almost to the point of death. He lies in a a semi-coma state. And so the other heroes of the story, Inigo Montoya, is going to try to rescue Princess Buttercup, but it's pretty evident that despite his, despite his sword fighting skills, he's probably not going to be able to pull this off on his own, right? And then you have Fezzik, the giant. Fezzik is enormously large, enormously strong, but his strength alone is not going to be enough to pull off the rescue. You remember the story. They even go in an act of desperation to Miracle Max. And Miracle Max conjures up some stuff. You know, there's, the, there's theology here. This is an acknowledgement of the need for supernatural help in the rescue. So with all these minds coming together, a little touch from Miracle Max to bring Wesley back to life. The man for the job is Wesley, right? And, you know, I don't need to worry about spoiling it because you all have seen it. Wes- Wesley pulls off the rescue with the help of his friends. I saw another movie recently. Don't necessarily recommend it, but um, interesting movie, a true story about the life of Richard Phillips, who was a sea captain taking his cargo ship through the Somalian seas, and he was hijacked by pirates. And again, a rescue was needed. A good man, an, uh, an innocent man in this scenario, needed to be rescued. The Coast Guard, I think, first came to try to rescue him, but these Somalian guys were pretty nasty guys, and uh, it was not going to be an easy rescue. And so eventually, they had to call in Jason, you're going to like this. Well, maybe you won't. But they had to call in the Navy SEALs, right? You okay with the Navy SEALs? These are, you know, if it was me, I'd just call Jason, quite frankly, and I'd, I'd feel pretty good about that. But they called in the Navy SEALs, and these guys came in, and they got the job done, and they rescued Captain Phillips. So the lesson of the story is the old maxim, don't send a boy to do a man's job. Don't send a boy to do a man's job. I have three sons, and I tell the gospel brothers over here on a regular basis, when there's work to be done, guys, run to the work. And oftentimes they do. Sometimes, being young boys, and sometimes I even do this, when there's an ugly job to be done, you know what I do? I hightail it and I run the other way. At least I look the other way, and I'm waiting for someone else to volunteer. And as soon as their hand goes up, I go... Oh, I would, have, I, I would have done it, you know. It's chicken. It's running from the work, right? When there's work to be done, I try to be an example. I often fail at it, but I try to be an example, and I try to tell my sons, and I would tell all of you. I think Christ would exhort us. When there's work to be done, when there's difficult work to be done, run to the work. This is one of the slogans in the Cusel home. Run to the work. We all want to be... The guy, and I'm speaking, I'll, I'll speak to the men here and the boys, but it really holds true of all of us. We want to be the one that when there's work to be done, we get the job done, and then someone comes and says, well done. You did well. This is what we want to hear from our Heavenly Father, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Um, Jacob, you're working a lot of hours now, Right? I was proud of Jacob a while back. He was at a company, probably most of you know this story, and they were asking him to work on the Lord's Day. And Jacob was convicted he didn't want to do this. He didn't feel it was right. He went to them and said, 
I don't want to work on the Lord's Day. And they told him he had to. And so he resigned. Right? And they came back a few days later and said, we need you so much. You're a good worker. Have it your way. You don't have to work on the Lord's Day. If we can have you the other six days. And so I got to believe that felt good, right? You come back and you hear the boss say, we need you. When the job needs to be done, you're the man. Pastor Mark sometimes will ask me to do stuff. He'll send me a text and I'll, I'll get it done. I'll send him a message back and he'll write back, you the man. I love that. It feels good when I, I can help my brother, when I can help my pastor. We all want to hear that, right? You are the man. Now David heard that in the scriptures. You remember the story. He heard it from the lips of the prophet Nathan. But he heard it for the wrong reasons. David had sinned in wicked and heinous ways. And Nathan was sent by the Lord to go to David and tell him the story about this man that had everything he could ever want, but he still went and took from another man. And David became incensed. This man deserves the sternest punishment. And Nathan looked at him and said, You are the man. But that's not what David wanted to hear. That wasn't like hearing it from your boss or your pastor or your dad. David had work to do and he failed in that instance. He failed miserably. Well, I tell you all this because the ultimate rescue story, of course, is the story of us being rescued from our sin, us being rescued from the wrath of God, and God sending his son to save us. And this is really what the book of Hebrews is about. I heard recently the late R.C. Sproul uh, saying in a recording that if he was stranded on a deserted island and someone asked him, you know, what book he'd want, of course he said, the Bible. What, answer, what other answer could he give? But they said, if you had to pick one book of the Bible, which one would you pick? And I was surprised at his answer. He said, I'd want the book of Hebrews. And the reason he wanted the book of Hebrews is because the book of Hebrews, he said, is, paints the clearest picture of the finished work of Christ and fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament and how they're related to that finished work of Christ in the New Testament. So when I heard that, that was a few weeks ago, I decided that would be the next book that I would lead my family through in our time of daily family worship. And so I want to preach to you today about this rescue story, and specifically about the one who came to rescue us, our elder brother, our king, Jesus. So first, a quick uh, background about the book of Hebrews. Uh, Unlike most of the other letters in the New Testament, it's not specifically addressed to the Hebrews. Often Paul will say, to the saints that are in Ephesus, to the saints and faithful brethren which are at Colossae. There's no such uh, address or salutation at the beginning of this letter, but tradition and history tells us it was, it was addressed to Hebrew Christians. The author of the book is unknown. Um, lots of conjectures. We frankly just don't know who wrote the epistle. It's kind of placed right after the Pauline corpus uh, and before the other letters of the New Testament. So it could have been Paul. Uh, I, as I have now, and as all of us have studied and memorized the book of Ephesians and Colossians over the last couple of years, you'll hear as we go through the first chapter or two today, I hear a lot of Paul's voice. I hear a lot of the same truths that Paul spoke to those churches in this letter. That doesn't mean it was, this letter was written by Paul. God's truth is God's truth, right? But you'll certainly hear much of the same uh, content and the same doctrine. When was the book written? Uh, before AD 70, the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system were still in place. So it's before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
Timothy, the book tells us in later chapters, had just been released from prison and there was a lot of persecution going on. So it's probably after 67. So probably somewhere in that 67 to 70 AD time frame. Why was the book written? The book was written probably, A, to comfort the believers. They were in a time of great persecution um, with Nero and others persecuting the believers. So it was there to comfort them, to strengthen them in their faith, and to remind them that Jesus is the one and only Savior. He's the only one that could have saved them, and he is the one who did save them. At this time, the, the, uh, the Qumran community, you've heard of Qumran. What, what, was, what is Qumran famous for in the last century? The Dead Sea Scrolls, right? This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, in the caves of Qumran. Well, back in this day, at the time when this letter to the Hebrews was written, there was a group of Messianic Jews that had settled there and kind of separated themselves from society. And while they were believers in Christ, they were believing some wrong doctrine. They They had elevated angels to the point of being equal to Christ. They were worshiping angels. Some even placed the archangel Michael at a higher level than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so a lot of people believe that this epistle was written partly to quell and to correct some of that false doctrine that had been perpetrated about um, worship of angels and about the exaltation of angels. You'll notice we go through this that there's a lot of exposition of Old Testament passages. So again, they're writing to Hebrews. The author here is writing to Hebrews. Hebrews had the word of God. They knew the Psalms. They knew the Torah. And so, of course, you'd expect that he would be making his case that this Christ is the one and only perfect Savior, the one and only high priest who could do this, you would expect them to refer often to the Old Testament. And you'll see that as we go through this. So what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is just to take the first couple chapters and kind of walk expositionally as best I can through these verses and then kind of wrap everything up. But again, what we're pointing to is who is the one who is worthy? You heard it in Revelation. Is anyone worthy? We sang of it the last couple weeks. Is anyone worthy to open the scroll? And the answer is, of course, absolutely. Jesus Christ is worthy, and he is the only one who is worthy. John needed to weep no more, the elder told him. There is one who is able to open the scroll. So let's look at the first couple chapters of Hebrews and see what the author and what the Holy Spirit are telling us. Verse 1 says, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, the prophets. So you think of Moses, who spoke of a greater prophet that was to come. You think of Isaiah, warning the Israelites 700 years before Christ that their rebellion was going to bring God's judgment upon them in the form of the Assyrians coming and the Babylonians coming. And of course, they didn't listen. They rejected Isaiah's message like they rejected all the rest of the prophets' messages And God's judgment did come upon them. You remember the parable in Matthew 21 of the vineyard owner who uh, planted a vineyard. He went away and then he's sending people back to the vineyard. And every time he sends someone, the wicked person he had put in charge of the vineyard would punish, destroy, ignore the people that were sent. This was a picture of God sending his prophets. Listen to me. Listen to me. And they're not listening. And finally, what does the vineyard owner do? He sends his own son saying, surely they'll listen to my son. And when he comes to the vineyard, the people there say, hey, here comes the son. He's probably the heir of this place. Let's kill him. And that's what they do. And at the end of the parable, it says the 
the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests heard this and they said, wow, I think he's talking about us. Wow, there's a brilliant exposition of some scriptures. <laughs> you know, of course he's talking about you. So, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now, in these last days, notice that phrase, in these last days, the Jews understood from Scripture, when you hear that term, these last days, they're talking about when the Messiah would come. So the last days isn't the 21st century and when the moon's turning to blood. The last days are the days since Christ's resurrection and his ascension uh, back to heaven. It says... um, He created the world. And you remember back in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is speaking of Jesus here. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's the exact imprint of his nature. You remember Colossians chapter 1 verse 15? It says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. He is the imprint. He's the exact picture. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the exact imprint. He is the image of the invisible God. It says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, Colossians 1.17 says, by him all things consist. Not only did he make it, he's holding it all together. Everything consists and is held together by him. And of course, when it says he made purification for sins, it's speaking of Christ's death on the cross, taking our punishment. And then it says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Levitical priests, the author of Hebrews is going to show us Jesus is a different kind of priest from these other guys. These other guys would do the work. They'd make the offerings. They'd make the sacrifices. And then they had to start over and do it again the next day and the next week. They could, they could never sit down. They could never rest from, from their labors because the people kept sinning. And their offerings and their sacrifices could not take away the sins of the people. It was a shadow of what the Messiah was going to do. But when Christ came, he made sacrifice, he made purification for sins, and then he sat down. It was finished. The work was done. Verse 4 having become as much superior to angels, here you see the author addressing this issue of angel worship, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Later in chapter 2, he says, for a little time he was made lower than the angels. We'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 2. But here the author is saying, this Jesus was made superior. It doesn't mean he was made in the sense he was created. It's saying he is superior to the angels. Verse 5 says, For to wit, now he's going to make his case here of why he's superior to the angels. For to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, it's going back to the Old Testament now, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We all know where that's from, right? Where's that from? Psalm 2, right? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the son is a title showing Christ's deity. This is different. No one ever said to the angels, you are my son. Okay, and begotten, we say that in the creed, begotten doesn't mean that he was made at some beginning point in time. Christ has always been there, always been co-eternal with the father. He says, I will be to him a father. This is 2 Samuel. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So there's another reference back to the Old Testament. So the author here, again, taking the Hebrews back, you know what it says in 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father. Now there, God was speaking to David about his son Solomon, but also, as happens so often in the Old Testament, he's speaking about two things at once. He's speaking to David about Solomon, and he's also speaking about the Lord Jesus. And we see this many times in the Psalms. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So first thing to note here is Jesus Christ is called the firstborn. Again, in Colossians, we remember he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Remember that? And he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, if they're equal, the angels wouldn't be worshiping him. So he's emphasizing this, that Jesus is high above the angels. Colossians 1.18 says, In all things, Christ might have the preeminence. I preached on that a few months ago. He is the highest of the high. He is above all, all creatures, everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You remember in Luke chapter 2, Uh, When we read the narrative of the birth of Christ, it says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Again, angels worshiping Christ. In verse 7, it says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So here a picture of angels, something mutable and changeable, something finite, Um, compared and contrasted with Christ's immutability. Verses 8 and 9. So there's there's passages about angels. Then of Christ, he says, but of the Son, he says, and he quotes here from Psalm 46, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, so this is showing the lordship of the Son, Jesus Christ, over all creation. And note the anointing here. Anointing means someone is specially designated to do a particular job. Someone is chosen, out of all the others, chosen to do a work. Notice in Hebrews we have Christ anointed as prophet, priest, and king. In verse 1 he says, God's spoken to us through the prophets. But now... The great prophet that Moses spoke of has come, and now he's spoken to us through the last prophet, through his son. In verse 3, it talked about Christ's office as priest, making purification for sins. That's what priests do. So Christ is our prophet. He's our priest. And then in this verse, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Christ is our king. All right, verses 10 through 12. He quotes here Psalm 102. I'll read it for you. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Okay, again, this is Jesus' sovereignty over all that he's made. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will all be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Verses 13 and 14. Now he quotes another psalm. What's he quoting from the Old Testament more than any other book here so far? The psalms. 
You see how Pastor Mark has been taking us to the Psalms, and he says he's going to preach in the Psalms for years. I'm glad he's going to. Almost everything we need to know about the Lord is encapsulated and summarized in some way in the Psalms. So the, the writer here keeps going back to the Psalms because he knew that the Hebrews knew the Psalms. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's from Psalm 110. The father never said that to any of the angels. He said that only to his son. Verse 14, are they not, they the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So he's proving here that Christ is sitting at God's right hand, whereas the angels are simply servants. They're messengers sent to do a job, but they're not equal to Christ. All right, let's go into chapter 2 just for a few minutes. Now you're going to hear some warnings. He's been teaching us doctrine. He's been teaching us of the supremacy of Christ. And now comes the warning. And the warning is, don't fall away from these things that I've told you. You know these things. You've been taught these things. He says later in this chapter, or maybe in a subsequent chapter, you ought to know these things by now, but you don't. So I have to keep feeding you milk like your little babies. You ought to be chewing on meat, on the meat of more difficult and complex things, but I have to kind of spoon feed you. So don't forget the things that that you've been taught. So he says, therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we we neglect such a great salvation? I don't know exactly all that this first couple of verses is talking about. The message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What came to mind, my mind was the priest Zecharias. You remember when the angel Gabriel came to him and told him that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a son? And Zecharias is doing his priestly duty in the temple. And Gabe, This is Gabriel, okay? Gabriel comes to him and tells him this. And what does Zecharias say? Yeah, that can't be. That's the wrong answer when the angel Gabriel comes and gives you a message. And Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, the one that sits in the presence of the Lord. And I've come to you with this message directly from the Lord. And because because you didn't believe me, you're going to get punished. And he's unable to speak until the son is born. Remember that? So when angels come, they're not equal to Christ. But when they come, their message is reliable. They're coming directly from God, bringing a message. That's what the word angel means. They're messengers. They're coming directly to God with a message for us. So the author is saying, since Jesus, if angels are that powerful, if angels ought to be listened to like that, how much more ought we to be paying attention when he's now spoken to us through his son? So how can we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, verses 5 through 8. Now he's going to quote Psalm 8. Pastor Mark preached on this. Was it last week or just the week before he preached on Psalm 8? So now the writer of Hebrews is going to go back to Psalm 8. So listen carefully to what he does here. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere. Now the writer here doesn't say somewhere because he forgot where this is. This is just a common way that the Jews would speak of the scripture. He knows it's Psalm 8. It's been testified somewhere, quote, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Okay, so here's my question for you. In this section of Psalm 8, who is the psalmist talking about? What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? He's talking about us, right? Mankind. But he's also talking about Jesus. So if you, we, have to read, we have to read into what he's talking about. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man, with the small s, that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. He is definitely talking about us. But I'll prove to you that he's talking about Jesus Christ also. And you say, well, that can't be. It says you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. And didn't I just spend five minutes convincing you that he's higher than the angels? Why does it say for a little while? The Father made Christ for a little while lower than the angels. When he took on human flesh, he condescended, he made himself low, taking on the form of a servant in that sense for a little while. He was made lower than the angels. But then, after his resurrection, crowned with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author of Hebrews says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Okay, so that answers the question, doesn't it? If we want to know the answer, you know, we don't need a commentary. We go to the Bible and the author tells us, namely, Jesus. That's the one who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. Crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I'll just continue on in this passage. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. He's talking about the finished work of Christ, bringing those that he came to save to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes scriptures. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And in verse 15, okay, 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself... Likewise, partook of the same things that through death, through death, remember he's making the case here, Christ is the one and only Savior who's able to rescue us. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So sorry for reading a long passage, but there's no other way to really get the sense of this without hearing the whole thing, I think, put together. The author is saying, in the past, God spoke through the prophets. Now he's spoken through the great prophet, his son Jesus. In the past, he's spoken through angels. And angels have brought incredibly important messages. And when people didn't listen, they got punished for it. But now he's spoken through one that is greater than all the angels. And so if we're listening to the angels, 
or we should have been listening to them, we really ought to sit up and listen so that we don't neglect such a great salvation, knowing what he has spoken to us and what he's taught us through his son Jesus. And then he tells us, Christ is the one that might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's us. We were subject to lifelong slavery, but Christ has delivered us. And the chapter ends with this, and I'm wrapping up. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now I did some reading on this, and I think this, this verse is actually, I'm reading from the ESV, the verse is actually better translated to read this way. Instead of saying it is not angels that he helps, it's probably better translated, it is not angels that he takes on the nature of. Okay, it's saying Christ didn't come as an angel. He came not taking on their nature, but taking on the nature of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, taking on human flesh. If we, if we are people, if we are human beings and we need a Savior, we need a Savior who can empathize, who is like us. And that's what the author is going to say in the next few chapters. He's going to make a case then that not only is Christ the anointed one to save us, not only is he better than angels, but he is the great perfect high priest who made the perfect sacrifice he is fully God, but he's also fully man. We're gonna, after, after worship today, I'm going to teach through uh, the song, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, where we sing, The God Incarnate, Man Divine. This is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He was fully God, greater than the angels, but for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. He was made to be like us, so he could empathize, He knew our temptations, he could suffer the way we suffer, and he could actually pay the penalty for our sins. Isn't that great news? The last verses of the chapter end like this. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He's able to help those who are being tempted. So this word propitiation, and by the way, don't say propitiation. Propitiation. This is not a word. How many have used this word in your, around the house in the last week? <clears throat> not, a, not a word we use every day. It's talking about satisfying the wrath of God. Someone had to make propitiation for our sins, and this is what Christ did. Only the sinless Son of God could have done this. All right, so the summary of the first couple chapters is this. Christ is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He's the great high priest that accomplished all, all that was necessary to rescue us and to make all things new. When the really difficult assignment was on the table, the most difficult assignment of all time, Jesus was the man for the job. He ran to it. He ran to the work. He finished it. And he proved that he is worthy. So if you're examining your life and your heart and you come to the conclusion, as I trust many of you have, that you need to be rescued, you're right. But memorizing Psalm 3 isn't going to do it. I hope you recite Psalm 3 correctly and accurately today. That's a good thing to do. But memorizing Scripture isn't going to make us right with God, right? Feeding the poor and the hungry and clothing the naked, wonderful things to do. Adopting children, bringing them into your home, loving your neighbor, wonderful things to do, not going to save us. Flying to Myanmar, 
going to Russia, going to your neighbor next door and sharing the gospel. Wonderful things to do. Not going to save us. Calling Miracle Max. Not going to save us. Right? There is only one Savior. The whole book of Hebrews, the whole scripture, the entirety of God's word is pointing us to Jesus Christ is the only one that could have done what needed to be done to reconcile us and make us right with our Creator. What a wonderful reminder. What a wonderful case the author builds here to say He is in all things preeminent. He did it. He's the only one that could have done it, and He did it. So when you hear Christians say, put your trust in Jesus, I've said it many times. Pastor Mark preaches it to you every week. He preached it two weeks ago during our festival. They're pointing you to the only one who is able to do it. He is the man. He is worthy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for what you have done for us. We never would have come looking for you. There is no one who seeks you. No, not one. No one among us is good. No one among us has anything inherently good in us. We are fallen. We are broken. We are battered. We are bruised. We are needy apart from Christ. But now you have given us the righteousness of Christ. We have put on his robes of righteousness. We understand, Lord, I pray better now as we walk through this portion of your holy word that Christ is is the man. He is fully God, your son, but he is fully man, God incarnate, man divine, the only one who is able to open the scroll, the only one who is qualified to do the hard work that needed to be done, and he did it, and it's finished, and now he can sit down and is seated at your right hand, making intercession for us. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us in the person and in the finished work of your son, Jesus. We praise you and we thank you in his name. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.